kids start laughing about something as silly as a song on the radio and it's infectious you just got to laugh along with them right and, and you gotta you gotta then you gotta put things in perspective if you're having a bad day if your knees hurt whatever it is then you just look at him and go well this kid's been trapped in his body for 27 years and he's smiling and laughing and as happy as can be so look in the mirror and think mother of god you got nothing to complain about so stop whining um, <laughs> and get on with things. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is my dad, Michael Rosa. In his return to the podcast, we expand on some of the things we touched on in the first conversation, as well as fill in some of the pieces we didn't cover. If you're relatively new to the show, I would highly encourage you to listen to my first episode of my dad before this one. The first episode, which is episode one, goes over his upbringing and will provide you with a context that will make this co- this episode much more enjoyable and understandable. If you have already listened to the first episode, welcome back. In this episode, we dive deeper into my dad's rigorous exercise history and regimen, including his Ironman story. We discuss my brother Skylar, who has cerebral palsy and what it's been like to raise him. We honor my grandfather who recently passed away and discussed the lessons about business and life my dad learned from him. I posted the link to my grandfather's obituary in the episode description if you'd like to learn more about the extraordinary life that he lived. Finally, we go into my dad's uber-competitive mindset and what's next for him. And so, without further ado, my second interview with my dad, Michael Rosa. Dad, thanks for coming back on the show. Happy to be here, Chase. I can't, um, it's an honor to be asked once, so twice, um, that's a real privilege. You must be a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, um, so I wanted to use the second interview to expand on some of the topics we touched on in our first interview, sure. as well as fill in some of the pieces that we didn't cover. So I think it'd be good to start with a quick story and one that I forgot to mention during the first interview, which is the Iron Man that you did. Yeah. Uh, can you discuss when you did the Iron Man, why you decided to do it, how you trained for it, and what got you across the finish line? Sure. Um, it was 1985, I believe. Um, why I did it, I just wanted to see if I could do it. I just... I saw the uh, Hawaiian, um, the Hawaiian leg of the Ironman, the, the World Championships on TV. I had run a few marathons, and I thought, you know what? I know I can do the marathon. Anybody can ride a bike. I did a lot of surfing, so I figured I could do the swim. So I said, I'm going to do it. So I did it. Um, how did I train for it? I trained for about. Two months, Chase. Um, 
I lived on a pond, so I swam probably an hour, maybe three times a week for six weeks, maybe. The bike. Did you swim in the pond? I swim in the pond, yeah. Yeah, back and forth across the pond. It was a small pond, but it was... I just wanted to see if I could swim, basically. I knew I could paddle, but I didn't really know I could swim, so I did that. But I probably did maybe five workouts. Same thing on the bike. I um, went out and bought myself a bike. Did probably a handful of 60 or 70 mile bike rides. This was all in the span of a couple of months. Um, Did my usual runs, which were... I was doing 80, 90, 100 miles a week just as a rule, mm-hmm. not training for anything. So the run was the run, and um, and I just I picked a I picked a goal out of the air. I said I wanted to finish in under 12 hours. I just picked it literally out of the air, and um, I finished 10 hours 59 minutes. So I think I was in like I don't know 53rd place or something like that. Out of maybe six or seven hundred people, um, mm-hmm. it was pretty competitive. And uh, what got me over the finish line? Um, that's an interesting story, actually. Um, during the during the whole race, the swim, the bike, and the run, I pretty much took nothing in. No fluids, no food, no nothing. So I just. Was that on purpose or? Just because I wasn't, I didn't think I was thirsty and I wasn't going to drink if I wasn't thirsty and I was too stupid to know how to fuel my body with food. I was a, obviously a rank amateur and I just, I just went into it blind. Anyway, about 20 miles into the run, I was, I was really, really running on empty. And some friends of mine were there, and they could see that I was dehydrated and I was fading. And um, one of them had a Coca-Cola, and I didn't drink any of that crap. Um, anyway, he, he said, do you want some of this? And I was like, oh, God, no. But he said, well, just try this. So he shook the bottle of Coke and, and got all the fizz out. So basically, I was drinking Coke syrup. Mm-hmm. Um so I drank the Coke syrup. My body wasn't used to the sugar or the caffeine. As soon as I drank that, I felt like I um, had taken a handful of amphetamines. <laughs> and um, I could feel it, just the sugar and the caffeine just surging through my body. And I made it through the last six miles of the run. No, pretty much no problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so that's what got me through the finish line. Besides the fact I wasn't going to quit. I mean, I would have crawled across right. if I had to have. But um, that that Coke syrup really helped me. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. <laughs> Where was it? It was down the Cape um, in Falmouth. I think that race was won by a pretty well-known triathlete back then. I think it was Scott Scott Tinley. Well, I guess I can't say don't quote me on it because I was just quoted, but it was run by a, a prof- it was won by a professional triathlete, and there was probably a handful of them mm-hmm. um, that ran that race, and they were, I think they were in in 
close to nine hours, give or take a few minutes. So, but yeah, it was um, a good experience. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I finished. And um, I was one and done. I was really had no desire to do another one. Yeah. No. Anything that really surprised you about the race while you're actually running it? Um, yeah. Right out of the gate, the swim. I had no idea that the swim was going to be basically a fist fight. As soon as you got in the water, I was getting kicked and punched, and I had, I was like clueless as to, you know, how that was going to go on. But um, I found out real quick that the beginnings of these swims, um, you get punched and kicked, and, um, and I was getting a little irritated, to be honest. But it it didn't last too long, and um, that definitely surprised me. But after I got through the, you know, the first couple hundred yards. Um, this one was relatively easy. The bike, the bike honestly wasn't so bad either. I just went out and did the best I could. And I, I know I could have done much better if I had fueled my body correctly, but uh, I didn't. I was stupid and I didn't. And, um, and the last real surprise was when I got off the bike, put my running shoes on, and I had never... I never actually tried to run after my my bicycle training, so mm-hmm. I had no idea how my legs would actually feel trying to go run a marathon after biking 120 miles, whatever it was. Um, yeah, the first mile or so, my legs were, they felt like they weighed a thousand pounds, and I thought, <laughs> oh my God, there's no way I'm going to be able to run 26 miles like this. But they loosened up. Um, and I finished, and it was probably, um, it was probably ignorance is bliss at that point. Not knowing what I was in for probably was, was helpful. I don't recognize, I don't recommend ignorance as bliss as any sort of, uh, dictum to live by, but in that particular case, it probably served me well. Right. And so, was that the end of your endurance race journey? Like, did you to do any other marathons? I after? did other marathons after that. But no I, desire to do another Ironman? No. Um, again, the desire was, I just wanted to see if I could do it. Mm-hmm. I did it. Um, I knew I wasn't going to become a pro triathlete. I was really busy with work at that point. And um, I just wanted to see if I could do it. I did it, so it was... Was on to other things, right? And so, what did a like a training day look like while while you were working for the Ironman? Like, what did you do before work, and what did you do after? I would assume you probably did some double, some mornings and then night in the same day. Yeah, yeah. I every every day for the last God probably forty years now. Um, I start my day with a meditation, 15 minutes of meditation. Then I made up a stretching routine that I've followed religiously for, again, probably 40 years now. Um, made it up, um, gets to pretty much every part of my body, um, takes about 50 minutes. Back then, my normal routine was run. I would run probably 10 miles every morning. 
religiously uh, before work. Go to work, um, get home, and if it was it was during the summer that I trained those two months, I do remember that, so I was able to swim um, some nights. Some nights I would um, go into my weight room, and that was that was it. No, no science behind it at all. No, no logic behind it really either. <laughs> but, um, I finished. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And that was your goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you retire from Pacer and from work. What yeah. does your daily routine look like now? Right today. Um, or after I retired, because it was a bit different after I retired versus what it is now. Let's start like after, like we're shortly after you retired after in terms of like your exercise and what you did and stuff. Yeah, okay. Again, the same thing, the same beginnings. It was meditation, stretching. Um, after retirement, I was, I got really into being in my gym and, and doing a pretty rigorous uh, weight routine, weight training. Um, not to bulk up, just. I do different body parts like every day. Um, basically, always geared towards being a better tennis player, a better or a better surfer, or a better fighter. Um, fighting, fighting in the karate world. Um, so that's what the weight routine. Then I go play tennis. I play tennis religiously seven days a week. Um, at least one match a day. <laughs> Most days it would be two matches. Yeah. And it was predominantly probably 95% singles. And um, yeah, I played a lot of tennis. A lot of tennis. Mm-hmm. Did, you know, I did, I wasn't a great tennis player by any stretch, but I won a lot. Because I, <laughs> I was a pain in the ass to play against. Right. Um, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was a typical day mm-hmm. back then. Every day? Exercise? Every, every day. Seven days a week for without fail, no matter what. <laughs> no matter what. I, I didn't take a day off. Why? Why? Um, you know... I felt like I was being kind of a, a lazy person if I took a day off, and then I felt like it kept me more mentally focused, which which I think it did. But honest answer, I was addicted to exercise. Mm-hmm. Still am. I was addicted. That's the that's <laughs> the truth of the matter. <laughs> right. Full on. Full on. That's um, my drug of choice. Right. Yeah, much healthier addiction than some other stuff you could have gotten into. Yeah, especially with the history <laughs> in our family. So, yeah, I was lucky to find it. Right, right. And so now talk to me about the large part that surfing has played in your life. Ah, uh, huge. Um, I'll start from the beginning, I guess. Um, I first got on a surfboard when I was eight years old. Um my family was fortunate enough to be able to summer at Seabrook Beach in New Hampshire, and I would sit by the water watching the older guys surf and just thinking, man, I'd love to get a surfboard and try this. 
back then, um, surfing was considered kind of what hippies and drug addicts did, and my dad wouldn't let me get a surfboard. Simple as that. He wouldn't let me get a surfboard. <laughs> so I, I would sit on the beach, and one day I was just like, I really needed to try this. So I begged one of the older guys to let me use a surfboard. I said I'd carry it to back to his home if he'd let me try it. Back then, the boards were 10 feet long and weighed 50 pounds. Um, so I remember the board. It was a Hanson 50-50. I paddled out, caught my first wave, and I was hooked. <laughs> hooked. Hook, line, and sinker. I was done. After years of doing that, um, I finally, I was working part-time as a young teenager and I finally was able to afford to get my own surfboard and I did and surfed and surfed. Whenever I could, I would surf. Um, as the years went on, um, I've been very fortunate to travel. I mean, I've met some of my best friends surfing. Easily my best friends, lifelong friends. I've been able to travel to lots of beautiful spots like all over the world. I've been very fortunate. I've been to Hawaii, Peru, Australia, France, Costa Rica, Barbados, uh, St. Bart's, California. Um, and I'm not done yet. Um, and through all those places, I've always met really nice people. Super fun, you know, just been really fortunate to to see all these beautiful spots all over the world and um, still lots to come. Um, surfing was and is my refuge. It's it's uh, we, I, when I get in the water, everything everything else disappears. Whether I'm having a good day, a bad day, um, when I'm in the water surfing, it's me and the waves and my friends and the rest of the world disappears and every wave you catch is different um, well you got to try it it's um, super it's 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 good exercise it gets you out of your head right um, and no two waves are the same so it's it's a new adventure every time you drop in Mm -hmm. Like literally every time you drop in. And um, one of my good friends, Ralph, you know Ralph. Um, he yep, put, had he, him on the podcast. Yeah. So he, if you're listening to this, definitely check out that episode. He put it best. He goes, surfing heals all wounds. And it's true. It's um, it's like it's like snake oil that actually works. Okay. <laughs> Right. So yeah, it's been a huge part of my life and it will be continue to be because I have lots of spots in the world that I still want to see and um, um, it, it, it keeps me driven to do some of the other exercises and workouts and stuff I do now just so I can continue to surf and you know, most of the people I surf with are like a third of my age or a half of my age and um I want to still be able to get waves. So I, again, a lot of my training is geared towards surfing. Right. So that, yeah, it takes up a bitty, pretty big part of my life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, most of my travels will still 
will still be surf destinations or somewhere where there's I can get a wave every now and then. So, yeah. It's right. been big and will hopefully will continue to be big and hopefully I can keep my level at a point where um, I can still catch some waves with the young guns. Right. So, I, I know this answer, but for the sake of the the episode, what's your favorite surf spot in the world and why? That's... Um, well, you do know the answer, but for me to put it out there, I might get assassinated by some of the locals. Okay. <laughs> so what I'll say about it is um, it's in the Caribbean. It's a left-hander um, over over a shallow reef. When it's low tide, it's it can be scary. Um, but it's, it's a perfect wave. It's always offshore. Um, Easily my favorite wave in the world, and again, I've met some of my best friends at, at that surf spot, and the local kids around here who know me probably know which wave I'm talking about, but again, <clears throat> being respectful to the locals where this spot is, I'll, um, I'll just say it's a perfect left, <laughs> and, um, and actually, right. you, you've, you've surfed it. Yeah. Well, um, and I have to say, I threw my son into this wave on a short board. He'd never surfed before, and um, he got to his feet um, on a five-six short board at a really challenging wave. So, kudos to Chase. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So, is there anywhere in the world that you haven't surfed yet, but would love to? Yes, most definitely. Um, <clears throat> the Mentawes. An island chain um, in Indonesia. There's actually even a, a surf resort there that I'm planning on going to as soon as, as soon as international travel is allowed. It's called the Kandui Resort. Um, it's in the Mentawes, and it has, from what I've heard and what all my friends who have been there, a hundred percent agree that. It's like perfect waves, perfect waves, perfect conditions, um, and it can get as gnarly as you want it to be, or you can find a wave around the corner that's a little more forgiving, or you can go to a spot called No Can Dewey, which I guess is the most frightening wave that anybody, um, pretty much the most frightening wave you can surf without going to a place like Shopu, for example. Right, and I actually would like to try shopu one day, but not, not big shopu. Um, not unless I'm trying to commit suicide. Okay, then I'll go there when it's huge, and I'll just, I'll get killed. Okay. Where are the Mentawes? Just for they're in Indonesia. Okay. In the Indian Ocean, um, they're off the coast of Indonesia. Okay. It's an island chain, and um. It's a it's a haul to get there, but everybody says it's well worth it. And like I said, as soon as the travel re, uh, restrictions are lifted, um, I plan on going there. I don't care how long it takes to get there. And if it takes two days, three days of travel, then so be it. I hear it's worth it. So I'm going to find out for myself. Right. Okay. And shifting gears here a little, um, probably the biggest part 
of the story that we didn't cover in the first interview is my brother Skylar. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So maybe to start here, walk us through his early years and when you found out that he had cerebral palsy. Okay. Uh, yeah, Sky is is um, is is my firstborn. So when when we brought him home from the hospital, first probably six eight months, he never stopped crying. I mean, he like literally never stopped crying. Um, I felt bad for your mother because she was she had him all day. But as soon as I'd get home from work, she'd hand him off to me, and we couldn't get him to stop. But we had no idea what was wrong. We thought he was a colicky baby, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, so we tried all the anti-colic measures, and none of them worked. Um, yeah, so the only way for the first six, eight months, like I said, for him to calm down, I would take him on the weekends. I would put him in a snuggly, which is basically, a for those who don't know, it's a backpack that you wear on your chest, and you throw the baby in it, and I'd walk him along the ocean. And the sound of the waves and the surf would always seem to calm him down. So I would walk for hours with this kid attached to my my belly um, just to shut him up. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was literally, he was incessant. It just wouldn't stop. Um, and And probably, I don't know, eight or ten months into it, we... We just we were told something might not be right. He wasn't developing the way most normal babies do. Mm-hmm. So um, after a few doctor's visits, um, me and me and your mom took took Sky to see a well-renowned neurologist in, in Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, Mind you, at this point, your mother was pregnant again with you, actually. And we went in there, and the doctor had taken some tests, and we waited for a bit. And anyways, he came back and, and, you know, basically told us the news that, you know, Skye had cerebral palsy. Well, you can imagine what what your mother did. She was hysterical. Right. Just crying hysterically. Um I was just like, I was numb. I was trying to be um, cool about it because I saw your mother was just like going cuckoo and rightfully so and I didn't want to add to the hysteria. Right. Um, but yeah, that was, um, yeah, that's when we found out he was not quote unquote normal. And um, yeah, we had a, child with um, a disability so um, we got home and kudos to your mom she started researching everything on cerebral palsy and I was so busy at work at this point I, I couldn't really help out much but we took him everywhere we took him to Canada to see a specialist. We took him to Philadelphia to a special school, which I can't think of the name of right now, to be honest. But for kids with in Sky's condition, that supposedly would help them uh, regain some semblance of normalcy, but it wasn't to be with Sky. 
we put them in a special school, we put them in a regular school trying to integrate them, which was an absolute joke. Um, took them to witch doctors, traditional Western medicine doctors, uh, Eastern medicine doctors, cranial sacral people, um, everywhere. Um, we were desperate. We were desperate people doing desperate things. Mm-hmm. Um, so desperate that um, I decided to take him to France to a, a, a Catholic shrine in France called Lourdes. It's in the southwestern part of France. Um, and it's renowned for miracles. Miracles supposedly happen there. And millions well, before COVID, obviously, millions of people go there every year to try to uh, be cured from whatever ails them. There's, when I got there, there must have been thousands and thousands of pairs of crutches and wheelchairs that were left there from people who went there, who couldn't walk, couldn't whatever, um, brain injuries, um, diseases, walked away on their own. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I I I bought myself a backpack, thinking I'd carry Sky around Europe with me, so on, uh-huh. um, and it would be all right. He was probably one and a half, two years old then. Um, drove into the airport, parked the car, got out of the car, put the backpack on, tried to put Sky in the backpack. He was having none of it. He was screaming bloody murder. And I was like, oh, good God, what am I going to do? I can't carry this kid around Europe in my arms the whole time. Because it was a rough... I had to fly to Paris, then take a train, then a bus, and then then a walk around Lourdes and the whole bit. And Anyways, um, but that's what I ended up doing. I literally held that kid in my arms for, wow. for a week. Because he would not, he would have nothing to do with that backpack, nothing. So I carried him around. I carried him on the bus, carried him on the train. Everybody who saw him, oh, what a cute kid! And my arms are like freaking falling off half the time. And I was like the invisible man because all these people were just all they were interested in was Sky, mm-hmm. you know. So I could have been, I was a ghost. But yeah, I carried him. I carried him there, took him there. We got dunked in the holy water. Um, he obviously, um, you know, he still has a brain injury. I mean, he can't walk. Um, he's a happy kid now, so maybe a miracle did happen. I don't know, but um, not not what not what I had taken him to France for anyway. You right. Know, I was hoping for, you know. To leave the backpack there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, he could have walked home with me or whatever, but just wasn't to be. Um, so, yeah, so um, we were fortunate enough to, after that, we would spend winters, um, or a good chunk of the winters in, in Barbados, at least you and your sister and your brother and your mother. I was still kind of had to work a bit, but we bought a home in Barbados and took Sky there and realized that he did much better in warm water and warm weather, um, functioning and be, being able to exercise and come to find out he really loved being in the water, 
love the water being in the water as much as I do. Um, right. He really loved the water. And it was the only real exercise that he could get. Um, cause it took gravity out of the picture so he could swim. Uh, not as you would traditionally think a swimmer would swim, but he could keep himself afloat for hours. And he just loved being in the water. So we decided we, we found a really good nanny. And um, he's lived in Barbados in the winter since he was probably four years old, maybe. And he's he's actually there right now. Um, he usually comes home in the summer, but he's been stuck in Barbados um, since March when I was planning on taking him home. They locked down the island because of COVID, and um, he's still there with his nanny. The nanny just sent me some pictures today, actually, of him swimming in the ocean, and he's happy as a clam, so I can't complain. Um but yeah, it was, there were years there, probably the first eight years of his life when he was home. He was a freaking nightmare. He was crying and whining and temper tantrums and um, embarrassingly so. I'd say there was probably many times I was like, I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to, th- to throw him out with the bath water. I mean, it was just a real challenge, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, a real challenge, um, through no fault of his own, mind you. Um, but yeah, he, um, yeah, he he put us to the test <laughs> for sure, for <laughs> sure. Um, still does on occasion, but you know, everybody has their moments, so I, I can't. Um, I can't complain about that, but he, um, yeah, he was a challenge. And, and just to, to circle back a bit, um, one of my worst fears was always um, when I would see people that had children with disabilities, I'd always think, oh, my God, I don't know what I would do if I ever had a child that was was not, um, quote, unquote, normal. Um, if they had a disability, if they were hurt, if I couldn't help them, um, I don't know what I'd do. It was a real, genuine fear of mine. Even before I was married, I, I would see these people and I'd be in awe at how they could do what they were doing. And then um, when it happened, uh, I definitely blamed myself. I thought, Mother of good God, I must have been a till of the hun in a previous life and now I'm being punished. Um, but in hindsight, it was, um, you know, it was meant to be, um, he's certainly turned into a different kid the last probably, I don't know, eight or 10 years at least. He's, um, easily the happiest person I know. He's always laughing, always smiling, um, can make you, if you're around him, if you could be in the most foul mood and he'd start laughing about something as silly as a song on the radio and it's infectious. You just got to laugh along with him. Right. And you got to, you got to, then you got to put things in perspective. If you're having a bad day, if your knees hurt, whatever it is, then you just look at him and go, well, this kid's been trapped in his body for 27 years. 
and he's smiling and laughing and as happy as can be. So look in the mirror and think, Mother of God, you got nothing to complain about. So stop whining um, <laughs> and get on with things. So uh, right now I would probably consider him, I do consider him a blessing and he's, I'm sure he's, he's some sort of angel who was sent to the family for for the reason to help us all put, put life in perspective and make sure that um, we understand how fortunate we are with what we have and who we are and the health that we have mm-hmm. and um, and how lucky we are to actually have um, had him sent to us. Right. But again, in the beginning, I'd be a bold-faced liar if I said I that was um, anywhere close to being on my mind. It was, it was brutal. It was brutal, and it still has a on the family. I mean, we have to definitely plan our life around what we're going to do with Sky. Can we travel mm. with him? Is he going to be okay where we go? Can we find someone to take care of him so we not. Um, so he can get some some freedom, and we can get some freedom. Um, so yeah, he's he's had a huge effect, huge. Right. Just to fill in a a couple pieces there. One just kind of more technical uh, for people listening who don't know what cerebral palsy is. So it's a group of permanent movement disorders that appear in early childhood. It's caused by abnormal development or damage to the parts of the brain that control movement, balance, and posture. Most often this happens during pregnancy when usually the, the baby does, doesn't get enough oxygen to the brain. And so other symptoms can include seizures and, and problems with thinking uh, and reasoning. So just put that in there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, um, that's all true. And, and there's many different levels or, 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 yeah, many different levels of cerebral palsy. Sky would probably fall in the middle you know some people with cerebral palsy can walk can feed themselves dress themselves you know can function relatively normally and there's other kids with cerebral palsy who are pretty much vegetables um sit in a wheelchair all day and can't really do anything um you know they have to be fed by tubes and just pretty much like i said just living vegetables so Sky's in the middle. You know, he can't walk. He can't, you know, he can't take care of himself by any stretch of the imagination. He can communicate, especially if you've been around him a while. You can understand what he's trying to say. He gets frustrated every once in a bit when he can't um, really tell us what he wants or what he needs. Um, right. But for the most part, we can understand whatever it is that ails him or whatever it is that he wants or whatever it is he's laughing at, he can communicate. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it's all good. Things could be worse for sure. Right. For sure. Um, like I said, he's, to me, he's a, he's a miracle because I know if I was trapped in my body for as long as he had been, I um. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. I would have found a way to end it. <laughs> right. And then uh, on the swimming piece, so basically since Sky can't walk, all he's using to swim 
and keep himself afloat for all those hours is upper body strength. Yes. So he's very strong <laughs> yeah, in his upper body. Yeah, he has a huge upper body, actually. Um, yeah, he's, he's strong as Hercules. Yeah, he's a really strong upper body between the swimming and pushing himself around in the wheelchair, um, crawling along the sand on his hands and knees to the, to the water on the beach um, without using your legs. Anyone who's listening, try that someday. Just try to pull yourself along the sand without using your legs at all. See how far you get. <laughs> then let me know. Right. And so when when was that like turning point for when Sky went from kind of having all those temper tantrums and behavioral issues to how he is now? Like, was there like a specific like time? Kind of really when you, I, kind of when you notice that? I think it was probably. I mean, I, I can't pinpoint a day or a month or mm-hmm. even a year, but it gradually subsided as um, as I think the more time he was able to spend in Barbados um, it seemed to mellow him. And again, as they say, you're a product of your environment and, and the people in Barbados are extremely laid back. Um, he got to exercise, um, he got to be in his element, so he wasn't so frustrated all the time. His nanny is, like I said, is wonderful and, and um, come and, you know, you and your sister and your mother all have done, you know, a remarkable job caring for the kid. So over time, he just matured and... Um, he grew out of it. I mean, as you know, me and Sky had some real problems with each other when he was having those tantrums. Um, I just, I would lose my patience with the kid, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And um, you guys had to take over because I had to walk away or else I would have probably killed him. Um, it was, it was gnarly. Yeah. But, Everything's changed now, you know. I the only the only bad thing about him being in Barbados now is, um, you know, he's much safer there. We certainly we all miss him, but um, me in particular, I'm not able to speak to the kid or FaceTime or whatever the latest uh, computer program is, where you can communicate with someone who's not close by. Um, he still cries when he hears my voice on the phone. Right. So I um I haven't been able to talk to the kid or or you know FaceTime with him. I haven't seen the kid since January, which is the longest that we've ever been separated. Um, so that's a little bit difficult, but but again, that's kind of being selfish because. He's like I said. He's much safer in Barbados. I think they've had like a hundred COVID cases since this all this nonsense began. Um, seven deaths and no new cases or deaths for probably a couple of months now. So and Sky because his his immune system and basically everything in his body is so compromised. If he got sick with with this particular virus. Um, it would probably be the end for him. Mm-hmm. So, 
in in reality, he's much better off there. And um, we just got to suck it up, and we'll see him when we see him. <laughs> right, right. Okay, and then moving on here. So, in honor of your dad and my grandfather, who recently passed away, I wanted to dedicate a segment of this podcast for a quick story or two about him. Sure. I know there are probably tons of good stories from your days um, <laughs> working together at Pacer or otherwise. What's one that you'd be willing to share on here? Oh, uh, yeah, there are there are tons of stories. Um, I've been. I've been working alongside my dad since he started his first business. Um, I was probably like eight or nine years old when, when that happened and he would have me sweeping the floors and making stock boxes and doing all sorts of odd jobs. But fast forward to, I'd say, the best story I, I, I can I can relate is the one where... Me and my dad um, went into Boston to a well-known, high-powered, uh, very successful venture firm. Um, we were ready to sell Pacer, which was, of all the businesses my dad had, was the star. It was the superstar of all the businesses. It was, you know, we had done very well, but but we were we wanted to sell. You know, we were ready to get out. So um, we were doing a bridge sale to um, this venture firm, which doesn't need to be named. Um, and anyway, we we were going in to negotiate a price. Um, me and my dad had talked about, you know, the price we wanted and what we would settle for, which is the price we wanted. And... Uh, <laughs> So we went in and, um, you know, we were going to meet with the CEO and, and the co-founder um, and a couple of his associates. <clears throat> Excuse me. All very brilliant. I mean, really smart, smart people, you know, um, Ivy League grads, most of them Harvard grads. Um, so that they had good pedigrees. And, and, and as I worked alongside them, I found they were very, very bright. But when we got there anyway, we, we, we had some small talk with, with the CEO and I felt that he was being a little bit uh, condescending and pandering to us and treating us like peasants almost and giving us the time of day and the time to even consider putting Pacer Electronics into their portfolio. Like, we were lucky that they were even considering it. And I was getting irritated, to say the least. Um, me and my dad had been in a lot of different business circumstances, and we had a few different hand signals that we would use um, to try to cope with various situations. And anyway, as this conversation went on, my dad saw me fidgeting, and I was like... I was ready to attack this guy because I was like, no one's going to talk to us like this. Really being just pandering to us. It was horrible mm-hmm. from my perspective anyway. My dad just gave me the hand signal, which meant, you know, in in weakness show strength and strength show weakness. And then he put his hands up to his lips and gave me the universal 
sign of basically don't say anything, shut your mouth, Michael, I'll take care of this. And then um, then I watched as my dad methodically just dismantled this guy. <laughs> From A to Z, every time this guy put something forward, my dad had an answer for it, and a great answer for it. And completely disarmed him, not being vicious or anything, but totally took over. My dad took over, the peasants took over. Um, and I watched, and as I saw his a couple of the um, associates' jaws literally drop to the table, um, they didn't know it hit him. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, the negotiations, you know, continued, and you know they started at a price which was probably twenty percent less than what we were asking, which equated to millions of dollars. And um, when we left, we got the exact price that we wanted right down to the penny, not a nickel less. And um, left there, walking down to the elevator. I just I looked at my dad and I said, geez, that was quite a show. He just looked at me and he goes, Michael, when Robin doesn't make a spring. <laughs> I was like, well, What? And basically, he meant what he meant was, you know, it, it was it was the first step in 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 a long process, but we had we had definitely taken that first step. Um, you know, we saw the one Robin, but didn't mean the game was over by any stretch. But anyway, that was um, that was probably the biggest um, biggest deal certainly that we ever made. Um, with all with all my dad's businesses was was the sale of Pacer and eventually we did we did the deal with this particular company and I worked alongside these associates <clears throat> smart guys I learned a lot brilliant guys actually um, I got another college education working alongside them so thanks Tom and Scott and. <laughs> I forget the other guy. I think Dan was the other guy's name, actually. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, that was that was definitely a good a good lesson for me. Mm-hmm. And it was and it was indicative and telling of how how brilliant my dad was. Mm-hmm. And he was a brilliant, brilliant businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, did I answer your question? <laughs> no, that's I, a, I've been rambling for a bit, so I forgot. No, that was, that's a that's a great story. So what? Um, like how was how was Papa answering like the questions in such a way that he was, I he guess, kind of owning the conversation? He had, if that makes he, sense. He, he yeah. Um, I can't really give specifics, but I can tell you with every proposal or every nuance or every angle that this particular CEO um, put forth to us, um, which were all angles to try to reduce the price. Okay. And my dad always had an answer for it. You know, I I can remember one specific, um, well, well, Dom, you know, we're trying to work with you. Can't you compromise? My dad looked at him. I've already compromised. (laughs) okay i see yeah so meaning that the price that we we wanted was a compromise on his part already and he wasn't he wasn't going to budge yeah okay so that was kind of how that went yeah 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 
what's this, what? If maybe if I had to pick one, the biggest lesson about leadership, business, or negotiation that you learned from him? Oh, well, I'll take each one of those like individually. Or, or one. You don't have to um, go through each, all three. But. Okay. Um, negotiation then. When you're going in to negotiate, no matter what it is, whether you're going to sell your business, buy a car, buy a house, whatever, um, go in knowing what you what your bottom line is. In other words, go in knowing what you're willing to pay, what you're willing to sell for. Um, go in also with the with the knowledge that you're willing to walk away. Because if you're not willing to walk away when you go into that negotiation, you're already put yourself um, on the defensive, and you have a good chance of not getting what you wanted. So no matter how badly you want something, um, you need to be able to and willing to walk away, or else you're, you're not negotiating um, at full strength. So that was a real powerful lesson I learned along the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a quick, a quick other thing that that I, I thought was pretty, pretty telling about my dad, um, in in business and in life, basically, he said, the only good deal is a deal in which both parties think they've made a good deal. In other words, if you and I were talking and we decided um, I was going to sell you my surfboard for ten dollars, and you thought, geez, that's a steal, and I thought, geez, I just I thought I would get one dollar for it, and I got ten. So I am. Um, I made out like a bandit. You think you made out like a bandit? <laughs> that equals a good deal. Right. So <laughs> when both parties think they pulled a fast one on the other. Yeah. <laughs> but not not to that extent. But both both parties come out thinking, "Geez, that's that's a good deal, a fair deal. I'm I'm happy with it. I don't feel like I got taken. That's a good deal. Right. And it's it's a good rule to live by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And shifting gears here a little. Um, so with all the press that venture capital and unicorn startups like Uber and Airbnb get these days, I think a lot of people are getting into entrepreneurship for the wrong reasons. Maybe like make a lot of money really fast, for example. <laughs> yeah. And there are certainly stories, our stories of people who made millions in a relatively short time frame, but the reality is that most success stories had many, many years of ups and downs along the way. Yeah. So my question is, if someone has dreams of building a business of substantial scale, and let's say in this case, greater than 20 million of annual revenue, Mm -hmm. what words of wisdom would you give to that person? Well, I'm just going to go back a little bit. I'm not real sure um, that anybody has made a truly successful business very quickly out of the gate um it takes a it takes a lot of hard work a lot of discipline um a lot of dark days um but what i would say to someone who's trying to start a business and who wants to make it successful go in knowing that you're going to marry that business and you're going to you're going to that's going to be your life 24 7 and um and it has to be because if it was easy to become a successful business entrepreneur, everybody would be doing it. Everybody would be millionaires, but it's just not the case. Um, 
flip side of that is go in knowing that, well, I saw this guy do it, you know, and just know that, you know, you know, he's no better than you. So if anybody can do, if someone's done X and been successful, just know, well, it can be done, so I can do it. Um, so have faith in yourself. Um, if you're doing what you believe is right, just keep going forward, never back down, never back off, never, right. never, no matter what. If you think you're right and you're doing the right thing, don't give up. Don't give up. That's um. That's about. That's that's what I can say. Um, just be prepared to um, work really hard, but if you have faith in yourself, it'll it'll happen. It'll happen. I mean, I'm living proof. I'm pretty much a no talent bum, and I did okay <laughs> for myself because I was stubborn as the day is long, mm-hmm. like ridiculously stubborn. And that's being diplomatic. Right. <laughs> right. And that uh, kind of leads into my next question, which uh something I recently learned. What was the ultimatum rule that you had at Pace, <clears throat> and why did you enact it? Yeah. Um, as we were growing, and um, I, I took, I took um, a lot of more responsibility to, to run, like, all aspects of the company, um, some of my employees and some of my vendors and even some of my customers would would be giving me these what I would consider ultimatums which were basically either or either you do this or else you know vendors would come either do this or else you're not going to get the line customers would come either give me this price or you're not going to get the order employees would come to me and I need a raise. If I don't get a raise, I'm, I'm leaving the company. You know, and, and I was like, you know what? I can't do any of this stuff. Um, if, I, if I succumb to everybody who gives me an ultimatum, I'm setting a really bad precedent. And my mind, is, my mind works, as you can, you can probably attest, and your mother can certainly attest. I'm pretty black and white. So I just, right. one day I was just like, you know what? No more ultimatums. I'm not going to do it. No matter what, no matter what the situation, I'm not going to succumb to anybody's ultimatum. No matter how valuable they think they are, no matter how good the order is, I'm not going to do it. And um, I stuck by it. Um, I can give you a quick example. Um, I had a really good inside salesperson who came to me when times were, we were booming, business was booming. And, um, come to me and said he wanted a raise. And I was like, okay, well, tell me why. You know, I always made them tell me why you think you deserve a raise and da-da-da-da-da. He was, he was being paid more than fairly, by the way. Okay. Um, you know, he didn't really have any good answers. It was basically, well, you know, I'm, I have a baby coming on way and I'm, my expenses are going to go up. Right away, that set off a red flag to me. I'm like, well, that's really not my problem. And it's not my concern. I mean, I'm glad, I'm happy that your family is expanding, but your bills and, and your expenses, your expense reports do not have any bearing on, on how you're going to be paid here. And, and anyways, he, you know, he got paid a salary plus commission and make a long story short, um, I said, well, I'm not going to give you a raise because 
it's really not warranted at this point. Um, you're being paid more than fairly, and um, we're just going to see, you know. But what I will do, I will set up a certain bonus program for you so that I'm not... I'm not stuck with a, with a fixed expense going forward. If things get a little rocky or tough, I still have this big nut to crack and you haven't done really anything extra to deserve this money. So I'll give you a bonus. You know, you do X amount of sales and I'll give you a bonus. And that way when things are good and he's producing, he gets more money. And when they're not, I'm still not spending more money to get the same results. Mm-hmm. Anyway... He come to me one, you know, a few days after I made the proposal and said, I, I need more money or else I'm quitting. And I said, his name was Billy. I can tell you that much. And I said, Billy, I really value as an employee, but you know my thoughts on what you just said to me. I'm not going to do ultimatums. And he goes, Michael, I know, but in this case, I really need the money. And I said, okay, well, you know what? You're done. Um... I called in his immediate managers, um, had them take him to his desk, clean out his desk, and, and escort him out of the building. Um, I never heard from him again. I saw him again, and um, I felt bad, but um, it sent a message to everybody. And I, right. didn't, I didn't really get too many ultimatums after that from the employees. Actually, I don't think I got it one. Makes um, sense. <laughs> um, but and and so again it just it opened the door to to me being pushed around and um I couldn't be pushed around. I had a business to run, I had a family to provide for, I had a hundred and some odd employees that I needed to take care of. And um it's not gonna be the inmates running the prison. Not under my watch anyway. Right. <laughs> right. What surprised you the most about the CEO job? Good question, Chase. Uh, I don't know if I was actually surprised by anything. Um, I did have a lot of beliefs, definitely. Um, made... Uh, made more firm by, for example, the value of surrounding myself by good people. Um, as, as I became more entrenched as CEO, I realized that, you know, CEO is more a, a director than anything else and he doesn't, you know, is not the end all and be all and doesn't have all the answers and doesn't do the best job in every single function of the company. That's just not what a CEO is. But what a CEO is, in my estimation, is someone who is able to find good people, attract them, keep them, um, and keep them focused and disciplined and productive. Um, and I was very fortunate to have and find some really good employees who were very loyal and, um, you know, made a nobody look like I knew what I was doing because I, like I said I right. if I had one gift I think it was the gift of being able to find and hire um, and keep good employees mm-hmm. so that was probably the most eye opening thing um, you know most people are in 
you know, are of some CEOs and, and maybe some deserve it, but for the most part, you're only as good as your workforce. And if, if, right. you, if you don't treat them with respect and dignity, sooner or later it's going to backfire on you. So treat them like you want to be treated. And treat everybody with respect and dignity and it goes a long way. Hope that answered your question. No, yeah, it did. Yeah, that's great. So getting into these last few questions here. Um, why do you try to make most things a competition? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question, too. We saved all the good ones for last. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, motiv- it motivates me. Um, I guess what I can say is I hate to lose. I hate to lose with such a passion that it's probably it's probably borderline, maybe not even borderline, psychotic. I um I have an awful hard time losing. I have losses from the most like minuscule just nothing events over my <laughs> life that still haunt me. I think about them all the time. I mean, stuff that means nothing to anybody or would mean nothing to anybody. And like for my competition, probably never even gave it a second thought. I can still remember losing this tennis match. Yeah, I was going to say. Losing this uh, Kumite fight to someone, you know, who I I could just absolutely dismantle at any time. Um, Losing a surfing competition in Florida to somebody because I took too many waves. I mean, just so many... You know, losing a yoga event because I just had no clue as to what I was doing. I mean, just lots and lots of, um, and, and, uh, you know, obviously in, in all those sports, there were many people who could beat me and deserve to beat me. But all that being said, I thought I could win every single thing I tried and I should win every single thing I could try. <laughs> God only knows why I think that. Um, my dad wasn't like that. My mom wasn't like that. Um, but I, I knew that if I made whatever it was into a competition, that one of us, no matter how lopsided the competition was, you know, I could go in and try to fight Conor McGregor in the UFC fight and think, well, you know what, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get my ass handed to me, but. He's going to know he was in a fight. <laughs> That's how my mind works. Right. Um, so, yeah, I made it into a competition because it, it kept me sharp. It kept me focused. And um, I hated to lose. And I figured, well, if I'm in a competition and I need to win this particular, whatever it is, win this order off the street. If, um, if I was at work, a big order was on the street. I made it into a competition with my... My competition out on the street are the wire and cable distributors. Well, they're not going to beat us. They're not going to beat me in this particular. And I did everything I could to make sure that we took that order off the street. Sometimes I would take an order at no margin, thinking, well, I'll get the order off the street. Then I'll beat up the vendor so I can make some money on it after I take the order off the street. It was just, I would do anything to win that was legitimate. Right. When 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 did that mindset start for you? God, as far back as I can remember, Chase. Mm-hmm. Literally, I can remember doing 
schoolyard races in parochial school in first and second grade. At the end of the year, they would see who was the fastest kid in first grade. And I remember I felt like I needed to win every time. <laughs> I just needed to win. Yeah. Um, and I can't, I can't give you a good answer as to why that particular mindset is um, so deeply ingrained. Um, but yeah, um, I hate to lose. To this day, I hate to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, not healthy, but it is what it is. Right. <laughs> I could be doing worse things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what does your daily routine look like these days? These days? Um, sure. Um, again, every day starts with 15-minute meditation. Then I get up and um, take a handful of supplements. Like I, I probably overdo on vitamins and so on too, but I feel comfortable with, with that part of my my nutrition program. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'll go down into my basement and I'll do my stretching routine, which takes about 50 minutes. Um, then I'll do some sort of weight workout for like an hour and a half, hitting, depending on what I'm working on that day, hitting core and legs or shoulders or whatever. Um, again, focus towards, well, maybe this will improve my yoga, maybe this will improve my surfing, maybe this will improve my kumite, whatever. Yeah. Um, always with that bullseye in mind. Um, then after I get in the weight room, if there's surf, I'm going surfing. There isn't surf, which is more likely, especially these days around this part of the world. Um, I go to yoga. I practice uh, hot yoga at a studio in Portsmouth called Blaze. Um, really great, great community. Um, it helped me a lot. Very, com- um, yeah, and so I'll do yoga five, six days a week. If um, Then I'll come home and... I've been lately trying to trying to write a book. Um, we'll see what happens with that. And I've been trying okay. to practice guitar. Um, not getting very far. It's um, yeah, I'm horrible at it actually. Do some work, and that's pretty much my day. There's a lot of obviously, as you can see, a lot of physical activity. A little bit of work, a little bit of trying to write, and that's it. Yeah. No traveling, um, which is a real bummer lately, but waiting for COVID to loosen its grip so I can start living again. Right. <clears throat> at least parts of life that have been taken. Um, I'm far better off than most, so I, I can't complain, really. Right. And then lastly, before we wrap this up, what's one thing that you'd love to accomplish over the next few years? Yeah, um, you know what, I thought, I thought about this, you were gracious enough to actually give me a little hint on this question, um, I thought about it quite a bit and I've come to the realization what I really want to be able to do is, um, lay the groundwork for my children so that they can have you know, happy, prosperous, 
healthy, successful, stress-free, anxiety-free lives. Um, that's what I would really, um, if I can pull that off, I'll consider myself, I won that competition. Let me put it that way. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I, I want to make the opportunities and the resources available to you, to you all so that you can pursue your dreams and pursue your passions. I don't want to gift it to you. Um, no, I don't want to spoil you, but yeah, I want to. I want to make sure that, that my children are um, fortified to take on the world and, and can can live out their dreams and their passions. Um, so yeah, other than that, um, I said I hope I get to see parts of the world I haven't seen yet, and surf some waves I haven't surfed yet, and meet some people I haven't met yet. Right. Awesome. It's a good place to end it. Dad, thanks again for coming on the show. It was thanks great. Thanks for having me, Chase, really. Um, it's a privilege. <laughs> and thanks to everyone who's listening, and we'll see you next time.